0: Hi, I'm Mona Noor, I'm a Product Manager at Nokia. I'm based in Ottawa, Canada, and I work with our security portfolio within the realm of cloud and network services. Every evolution since 1G has had better encryption and overall security than the last,
1: and this isn't going to change with 5G. I'm Katherine Speglia, and this is Well, Technically, the tech podcast where women do the explaining. Hi, Mona. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty excited. I'm excited, too. And we'll be talking about security, particularly when it comes to IoT and 5G, which I know is a pretty, you know, hot topic these days. Mm -hmm. But before we get into all of that, I have to ask you, what is an example of a time in which being a woman has empowered you?
0: First, I want to say I did listen to a few of your podcasts, and I know you asked this question, and I think it's a really great one because it forced me to to think differently um, about my experiences as a woman in in a traditionally male-dominated industry or space, Um, so So I really like this question. What I did was I went and looked up the definition of empowerment and it is the process of becoming more confident and stronger, especially when it comes to controlling your life and owning your rights. So having said that, professionally, I feel like I've been really lucky because I have a solid group of female friends that are uh, at work and we encourage and push each other in the workplace. And and that's really great. Also, in terms of leadership, I, again, I'd say I've been really lucky there. Prior to Nokia, I worked for a company led by um, a female CEO who's actually now our uh, leader in cloud and network services, Nokia, Mary O'Neill, and she's starting an initiative for women in se- security. On top of that, we have a really large group at Nokia. It's, it's global. It's called Stronger, and essentially their mandate is to empower women inside and inside of Nokia. And I've volunteered with them on a number of occasions. They they put out a lot of workshops for um, school age girls to encourage them in STEM. And to really try and promote it as a valid and exciting career option for them. So I I feel really grateful because in the workplace and professionally, um, all of these things have really helped my sense of empowerment as, as a woman in this space. But as an example for my personal life, um, so I used to be a competitive Muay Thai athlete. So that's Thai kickboxing. And this is like a very, very heavily male dominated area, but it's also a space where you, you really need to be confident and own yourself. Um, because if you're gonna step into the ring, you need to do things like train and spar with predominantly male partners. Um, and in my case, there were often much bigger people. <laughs> Um, But what I learned is that confidence comes from the act of doing and from consistent practice. So I did the things I was afraid of like showing up to those more intense sparring sessions and I did them until they didn't scare me anymore and my confidence grew. Until I got to that point, um, I started using this concept of 20 seconds of confidence or 20 seconds of courage. And essentially you just find 20 seconds um, to to be able to have that courage to walk into a room um, for sparring or for something that you're afraid of. And then you know, over time that led me into the confidence to step into a ring in front of a crowd of spectators. And, and in my life, there have been few things as empowering as that. <laughs> The, the great thing about all of that is that it's it's universal. It's a universal concept. So I can carry that mindset of that 20 seconds of courage or practicing the things that I'm afraid of into my professional career. So it's not unlike walking into a room for the first time of men in suits, you know, <laughs> and I think in a, in a sort of similar way, a lot of us have had to fight for our proverbial spot on the team. And once you do it a few times and you get that practice, you become empowered to do more as a woman than maybe um, stereotypes or society would would otherwise suggest.
1: That's very cool. I like that concept of 20 seconds of courage. I have only done Thai kickboxing twice, (laughs) but I did normal kickboxing for like a year and a half. That is hard work.
0: Yeah, it's a great workout. That's actually why I started it, and then I, and, and then I got into sparring and, and fighting.
1: Yeah, it's super fun. I really encourage anyone, particularly women, to give it a shot. Um, yeah. Also, thank you for providing some insight into what Nokia is doing around female empowerment. That that's very cool, and it's always exciting to hear what different companies are doing to advance women in tech.
0: Yeah it's it's really great because like um a lot of those girls uh, and I know it sounds a little like stereotypical but a lot of them are surprised that this is something that they can do you know or Mm -hmm. they still think that it's it's not for girls kind of thing
1: yeah I started coding just for fun I was shocked by how fun it was and that I was able to do it and how creative it was because all throughout college you know I was an English major all throughout college I thought coding was like something I could never do like I was incapable so I was really mad I was like really mad at the system (laughs) I was like how dare you convince me I could never do this thing I could be making so much money um yeah so I I know what (laughs) you mean Okay, so let's um, get into what you're really here to talk about, which is security. What sort of updates need to be made to security protocols in a 5G world?
0: So in 5G, one of of the key remaining questions for these 5G rollouts and, and for 5G adoption is how providers are going to implement the security policies, so the 3GPP security policies that have already been outlined for 5G networks and what additional security controls and technologies they're going to need to put in place to ensure privacy and availability. And especially considering that with 5G, we're going to get these new enterprise and industrial applications. Um, Basically, the exposure of these new connected industrial devices and, and connected critical services, so like your smart cities, connected road infrastructure, smart vehicles, all of these are going to significantly increase the entry points for threat actors. Um, not only is it is, is that going to happen, but also consider that the, the potential impact of these breaches, if say a power company or a water utility is compromised, the, the effects could be devastating for a very large number of people. So it's a very important um, question to consider. Overall, the most important threats for 5G networks uh, include uh, network disruption, um, spying of of traffic or data, modification or rerouting of this traffic or data, and and destruction of um, some of these digital infrastructures that I mentioned. Now, Every evolution since 1G has had better encryption and overall security than the last. And this isn't going to change with 5G. But again, the the, the threat landscape and, and the complexity of securing the networks has just become such a, a much larger problem and there's many more players involved. But you know, the fact is that 5G has embraced the concept of security by design from the very beginning. It already includes um, security protocols in each domain of the network. Um, Confidentiality and integrity protection are mandatory, and there are security controls in, in the access, transport, and core domains already. Now, I mentioned the 3GPP security standard. It's been very well considered and developed. But it's still just a set of recommendations and requirements, and it does require service providers to select technology, configure and deploy it properly, and they need to maintain vigilance. Um, Again, because of the very large number of opportunities that hackers are going to have to develop attacks, we know that the attacks are going to grow in scale and diversity, but they're going to focus on the scenes between connection points and networks. And they're going to focus on um, the handoffs between 4G and 5G networks. They're also going to exploit these newly connected IoT devices. So the bottom line is that Security still needs to be a key consideration in all layers of the rollout process from design to operation, and the providers need to make sure that they're baking in this security across the infrastructure from the end device, from the edge and core and back, um, just because there's so many potential points of entry to be exploited now. Um, so, the rollouts are going to need to have the security embedded into the wireless infrastructure, the IP network infrastructure, and they're also going to need to think about dedicated security solutions on top of all of this.
1: And now, my next question is one that I have been curious about for some time be, um, because I know that we always talk about how the cloud is great, the cloud is, you know, gonna, um, you know, make all these things possible. But is the cloud inherently less secure than local servers? And if so, why is that?
0: So, so historically, cloud security has been considered less robust than on-prem but it's cloud computing isn't a new technology anymore. So I wouldn't say that the cloud is inherently less secure than local servers. It just requires a a different set of controls and, and secure implementation. Actually, I would say that it can it can present a more secure option if it's properly managed. As a really simple example, uh, say against the DDoS attack, um, Cloud Infra can react by automatically instantiating new resources in other geographies, whereas local servers would just simply go down. So there are actually a few ways that the cloud can be a better, more secure option. Um, In terms of physical access, most companies and businesses, they just can't achieve the level of physical security that cloud service providers have, given the the amount of resources that they would need to do it, like real estate or personnel and technology. Um, at these cloud service providers, uh, employees, they have to pass through things like biometric scanners, security gates, fences. They've got security guards and surveillance cameras, and they and they audit absolutely everything that the employees do. On top of that, um, they they guarantee the redundancy of your data in a way that a lot of companies, again, they just can't achieve on their own. And when it comes to virtual security, I already mentioned physical security, but like cloud service providers invest so heavily that most other companies can't match it. As an example, Microsoft has... 3,500 cybersecurity experts, and this includes security engineers, security architects, analysts, incident responders, and the list goes on. And and all of these people, their, their single focus is on providing and improving security. And because of this vast expertise that they have on staff, um, the providers, again, have an ability to develop Uh, best-in-class authentication and access control systems. To to mimic that, it would take such a large team of developers and engineers um, to replicate something like that in an on-prem system. And that doesn't even take into account like the additional maintenance and testing required to to continually support and validate these systems. The same goes for patch management and vulnerability management. Um, cloud providers invest a massive amount of personnel and resources into this. Now, having said all this, these are the reasons why the cloud can be more secure than local servers, but it's still a shared responsibility. So the companies that leverage these services, they, they still need to own and implement proper security on their end. Um, just as an example, last year, actually, it was my last year before, you know, Covid shut everything down. I uh, I listened to a talk at RSA uh, given by Azure and AWS, and it was about the top ten cloud cyber kill chains. And I would say that uh, almost all of all of the vulnerabilities in that list were introduced because of improper configuration on the user end. So again, it's it's a shared responsibility. The cloud can actually be much more secure as long as all parties uh, ensure that security, basically.
1: So moving from more enterprise industrial talk of IoT, mm-hmm. in a video posted by Nokia, you mentioned that most home IoT devices like dishwashers and thermostats have very limited security measures. Why weren't they made more secure to begin with? And like, what can be done to improve their security? So the
0: so the answer to this boils down to the fact that most of these devices have very limited processing power and the companies that produce them have no real imperative or driver to use a portion of that processing power or, or their time actually for security. There, there aren't any enforced standards and the IoT ecosystem, especially for consumer devices, is just so vast that I don't think we will ever get those kinds of standards or it will take a very, very long time to to reach that point. But If we take a look at the ways that most of these devices have vulnerabilities, we can also see how maybe manufacturers could improve the security or consumers can protect themselves. So number one (laughs) is that we, or guessable hard-coded passwords, um, they're they're the bane of IoT security. In fact, a lot of attacks on the infrastructure just wouldn't be possible if not for this simple fact. So when, when you think about brute forcing a device, it becomes a trivial matter when most of them still have default usernames and passwords Another thing is that um, insecure services are a big issue, so things like network services such as telnet, uh still represent a huge security issue and most manufacturers don't address this and it continues to present a problem for these IoT devices. On top of that, you've got again an insecure ecosystem of interfaces. so when we're talking about the web, the backend apis, the mobile interfaces, a lot of these sometimes just aren't secured, and they let attackers gain access. Um, As an example, a car manufacturer had to pull their mobile application for controlling their electronic vehicles because it was found that the APIs that they used were so insecure that hackers could easily gain access uh, and control the vehicle. Uh, Moving on, um, we've got things like lack of encryption or access control to sensitive data, and that's either on the device itself or when it's transferring data. Again, that's a serious security risk that a lot of companies just don't um, address. um, I mentioned this in, in terms of passwords earlier, but a lot of IoT devices ship with insecure default settings, and Um, either because the consumers don't know how or they don't have access to, they remain unchanged after they've been set up in the home. And then finally, um, again, this comes down to physical hardening. Uh, This is another issue affecting a lot of IoT devices. So if the devices allow it, either through some sort of physical interface or an open port, attackers could potentially um, insert code. They could rewrite the firmware on these devices. But... Um, Having said all that, the the number one biggest predictor of whether an IoT device is going to be compromised is whether or not it's exposed to the Internet. Um, So what consumers can do to protect their devices is essentially protect their home network. And for most people, that means securing the router that they have from their ISP So things like updating their default passwords, using secure Wi-Fi passwords and making sure to change them regularly and keeping the router firmware up to date will all help. And then on top of that, disabling things that they don't need, like remote access or WPS, um, those will all help to secure their home network and and keep hackers uh, uh, from gaining access to their IoT devices. And then another way to look at it, though, is... um, mentioning ISPs, they could take ownership uh, of securing their users, which actually makes sense because really no ISP wants vulnerable devices in its network, right? So um, simple things that they could do is install software on their routers before it's shipped out. And and the software would provide an additional layer of IoT-specific security. And so that could go um, some way in, in protecting the consumers as well.
1: So are you, like, always nagging your friends and family about their, like, Internet, the habits. <laughs> no, I, try, I try to I
0: tried not uh, not too much, but I will point it out if I notice something.
1: That's that's fair. My partner, he is not in security. He just takes security very seriously and he's always giving me a hard time about it, which I totally understand. except that anytime I need like his password for anything, it's like a 30 minute process for him to like figure out his password because he has like such a complicated password system for everything. He's very <laughs> no. secure. Yes. So like. <laughs> yes, he's doing a great job. It is inconvenient for me. <laughs> <laughs> My last question is, what is Nokia doing to help its customers prepare for some of these security changes?
0: Nokia takes security, obviously very seriously. Um, we design for security from the ground up with all our products and, and everything that we do. We follow a, a really comprehensive approach, and it starts from the hardware supporting the cloud infrastructure um, towards the hardening of the nodes, with encryption, access control. Um, we take network security into consideration with so zoning, segmentation, firewalling, et etc. Um, we consider secure management of the VNFs and CNFs and, and through certificate management, privilege access management, malware protection, the list goes on. And of course, we have our own, um, which I work on, security products um, that play in the security automation and response space. Um, and all of these things uh, provide you know, security at every level of everything that we do. We've also got Bell Labs, um, which is uh, a lot of very intelligent PhDs that provide consulting both internally to the business units within Nokia and to our customers. And and they help everybody properly prepare and design for secure network deployments. Um, Nokia, we actively work with our customers to provide these consulting services as well as putting together blueprints for them for secure 5G network deployments. And of course, uh, again, the area that I work in, which is um, digital trust, where all we do is focus on security solutions and use cases. And uh, we make sure to design them for for multi-vendor 5G network deployments, because this is the, the reality of what's out there, right? So um, we want to work with our customers where they're at and help them secure their networks.
1: Okay, very cool. Well, Mona, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me.
0: No, thank you for having me. It was great.
1: Well, Technically is an Arden Media production. For advertising inquiries, contact Danny Miller at dmiller at ardenmedia.com. Today's show was produced and edited by me, Katherine Speglia.